This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. Lectures in History joins students in the classroom to hear lectures on campuses across the country. This week, Longwood University President W. Taylor Reevely IV and political science professor emeritus William Harbour teach a class about the presidencies of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Okay, we are ready to begin. We have two classes left this semester, today, and then uh, after Thanksgiving. So, I want to welcome C-SPAN and remind you, in terms of uh, what we've been doing this semester, that thus far we've proceeded in a topical way on different aspects of the American presidency in the first half of each class, and then in the second half of each class, we've had individual case studies. This class today and the next class will be different because we're focusing simply on case studies. So today we're going to talk about Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, and next time we'll talk about Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So, with that said, President Reevely usually makes some announcements at the beginning of our class. Well, there'll be so little to talk about when we get to Donald Trump. I worry, <laughs> I worry about the silence. Uh, um, with with uh, Bill Clinton and George W. on the docket today, uh, there were a few, few things that uh, warrant just some quick musing at the start. Uh, the first of which, which always uh, takes some, some kind of uh, um, uh, older folks like us, Dr. Harbour and me, me, have to acclimate our psyches to realize that to you all, Bill Clinton genuinely is a figure of, of history. You know, that the, none of you all have an active recollection or, or even a, a childhood recollection of Bill Clinton in office, which, which actually is kind of amazing always. And, and even... Even W is is kind of a a hazy figure to you. Uh, uh, none of you all were older than than uh, what? Probably was anybody older than ten when when W left office? No. So even W is is kind of a, a, a childhood figure to you all. Uh, that just in and of itself it gives gives a, a sense of. You know, especially for us, how, how quickly history can move and how quickly things pass from from current day to to historical, and um, a dimension of that, that that I've been thinking about too is uh, you know we're in the midst of of this moment of kind of generational angst and, and change. Uh, okay, boomer is is uh, pretty. <laughs> Pretty, pretty prevalent in the culture. Uh, Dr. Harbour, uh, barely a boomer himself, but, but a, a proud boomer. I remember Truman. <laughs> <laughs> proud um, boomer. Proud boomer. The thing that's so striking to me about that is uh, Bill Clinton, this, this person that now feels very historical. In 1992, uh, the transition from Bush 41 to Bill Clinton was uh, much kind of like this, this generational moment that we're in now uh, with millennials and boomers. Uh, this moment when, when the baton really changed hands. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, kind of an archetypal boomer. Uh, Clinton and W. born just a month apart in, in 1946. Archetypal boomer, uh, 41, uh, kind of archetypal uh, member of the greatest generation. And uh, at the time, uh, it felt like this this burst of, of energy and, and momentum and, and change. Uh, very self-consciously for, for Clinton, 
it was like a, a lot like 1960 when uh, JFK takes office, uh, you know, first president born in the century after Eisenhower, uh, 1960. In its own way, uh, not unlike uh, you know 1901 when Teddy Roosevelt, uh, much younger than than William McKinley, takes over, and, and there's this this burst of, of energy, enthusiasm, uh, uh, momentum, and then the thing that, that's also difficult. Uh, in the category of musings, for you all to really capture in your minds is how different the world was in 1992. Uh, you know, Cold War has ended, uh, midst of a of a small recession, but not a not a grievous one. And there was this this general atmospheric sense of of optimism, almost easy optimism, in a way that's very hard for us to to, to quite. You know, calibrate in our minds right right now, just given the the state of the world, and that that prevailed all during uh, Clinton's presidency. You know, in part because of him, and in part just just because of things that were going on, was certainly the the climate that W inhabited when when he was elected. Uh, that's why 9/11 was such a shock to to the country, such a shock to him. He, he thought that he was going to be a domestic president that got to just focus on. Um, an era of, of kind of easy progress, and obviously that's that's changed so much. Uh, but that that was that was what the world felt like, and probably uh, 1992 when Bill Clinton came along. So remarkable to think that for us this is a figure of history. Uh, interesting to to reflect on the generational change that was afoot right then. You know that we're at the at the tail end of right now. And, uh, you know, so strange to, to think about how different the world felt and, and how much more optimistic uh, once upon a time. Let's uh, talk about Bill Clinton growing up. What we've tried to do for each president in each case study is to talk about their background a little bit. And we're always, always interested in finding out what you think about their growing up in terms of how it might have impacted their presidency in some way. So what stands out to you? Yes. Uh, I think the thing that stand it out for me for Clinton is his work ethic. <clears throat> Just like always having that dream of wanting to become president and working his way through school from Georgetown to going to Oxford and England, then going to uh, Yale, I definitely see like him working um, influence like some of the legislation he tried to pass, like with um, health care and um, other stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, another oh, aspect sorry? that is worth mentioning is that he grew up to a middle-class family. His, both of his parents were traveling salesmen. And in a time, like you just specified, uh, President Reefley was, you know, when he, when he was growing up, it was, uh, we were trying to, like, still segregate. There's still segregation. Um, and we were kind of trans, um, trans, transpiring into an era where kind of uniting the country. And what I found is astonishing about his background is that both of his parents Despite everything, racial tensions in America, they would still sell to uh, other ethnicity groups, um, African Americans in particular, I mean, just in that aspect. Um, and also, he was a, he went to Catholic school as a young kid, so you know, kind of all this transpired into his presidency. Okay, may have gone to Catholic school, but perhaps did not absorb all the teachings. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> anything else? <laughs> yes, Liam. Uh, his stepfather was. Yeah, uh, that's very important. Yeah. 
We've seen other presidents have difficult relationships with their father when we talked about Richard Nixon and uh, Lyndon Johnson, for instance. But for Clinton, uh, what he saw in his home growing up, uh, the kind of abuse, the kind of arguments and everything, uh, that had to have some impact on him. Uh, His attempt as a young person to try to negotiate the differences between the adults in his life and everything to try to handle that. I think if you read some of the literature about children who grew up in alcoholic homes, uh, some of them develop a, a certain attitude about how to try to mediate conflicts. How to, to, to think historically, too, uh, a thing about uh, growing up when born in 1946, like, like Clinton and, and uh, W, is uh, you grew up completely under the shadow of the modern presidency. Uh, the, the, the presidency is, is this uh, august, uh, uh, incredibly powerful office, was just a, an ever-present reality in the, in the life of, of Clinton and, and uh, George Bush when they were growing up, which is, which is different than, than prior presidents. And prior oh, presidents. Sway? Um, also going off what you said, Harvard, uh, particular with negotiating, I mean, I can see how that kind of transpired because he was more of a centrist candidate. Um, throughout his entire whole presidency, he always tried to negotiate with Republicans. Um, and in, in fact, he actually got the first um, first president since 1969 to get a budget pass. Um, and another aspect is John Kennedy was very influential in his life. Um, he looked up into him. Um, so that kind of also transpired to his presidency. Okay. Anything else about uh, Clinton's growing up in Arkansas? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, well, at least uncommon thing of now is uh, <coughs> a Democrat being raised in the South. Uh, but it kind of pushed him to find that more moderate sense and become the, the new Democrat. Okay. What about his political career? Uh, yeah. I think he, like, modernized the Democratic Party. Like, he made it so it wasn't... Because I think before it was a bit more like business like led, and I think like he kind of like modernized it so it was like more like for like the middle class. Like he brought more middle class people into the Democratic Party. Like I know like he was like known in the party as like the comeback kid since he like did like change it a lot. Okay. Yeah, so in that vein, a, a thing certainly to think about, uh, and it's and it's a notable difference between. Um, George W. Bush and Clinton, uh, but one of these phenomenons that we've, we've, we've talked about plenty over the course of, uh, course of the fall is Clinton uh, not born into affluence, uh, really, you know, born into poverty. Uh, uh, w. born into, you know, tremendous uh, wealth and privilege. And it's just a, a good reminder of the fact that, that uh, those who have become president have, have come in, in all different you know, from, from all different types of, of backgrounds. Um, his, uh, your observations about his trying to change the Democratic Party, remember what you read about his leadership and the Democratic Leadership Council? Uh, before his election, Republicans had won five or six presidential elections in a country where there were more Democrats than Republicans. And the Democratic Leadership Council tried to move the Democratic Party a little more to the, to the center of the political spectrum. And uh, he, he tried during parts of his presidency to do that. Yeah, so, you know, today, uh, plenty of concern uh, that, that the Democratic Party uh, of, of 2019, 2020 has... has shifted too far to the left, that the Republican Party has shifted too far to the right. 
similar uh, during the, the late 70s and 80s as, as Bill Clinton was becoming politically active, uh, that, that there was a concern that the, the party of McGovern, uh, you know, that had, that had lost the 72 election in a landslide, had shifted too far to the left. And so Clinton, along with, with, uh, with especially other Southern Democrats, uh, worked hard to, to, to cr- try to create structures and, and uh, policy positions that, that shifted the party more, more towards the middle. Yes. And, and even today, in fact, uh, with uh, Mayor Bloomberg, he just announced his presidency, and he's kind of more in a centrist. So I kind of started to see there's kind of some shift going back to that center in the Democratic Party because you're getting a lot of these concerns. Could it, uh, an individual from the left, so far left, like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, could defeat President Trump? So you're kind of starting to see some of the balances. And I've seen over the, uh, the debates that they're kind of pushing back to the left a little bit more to try to bring some more support and to rally against President Trump. We talked about presidential elections in an earlier class period, and we pretty much covered the 92 election and uh, the disadvantages that George uh, Herbert Walker Bush had in terms of people being unhappy uh, with his uh, decision to abandon his promise not to raise taxes and the state of the economy and Clinton having some real advantages in that election. Let's talk about Bill Clinton's first two years in office, though. But uh, uh, a quick, uh, just because it flashed my brain, interesting factoid about the 1992 election. Uh, think regionally for a minute. Uh, remember it, it, uh, uh, a three-way race, uh, George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot. Uh, what, what part of the country were, were all three of them from? Yeah, they're all, all from the South. Uh, think, think of how striking it would be if, if we had an election, uh, you know, in the next cycle or two, where, where everybody was from one part of the country, or especially from from the South. Let's talk about those tough first two years in office for Bill Clinton. Uh, some of the achievements, some of the shortcomings, uh, some of the politics coming out of that. Yes. I think one thing uh, was with foreign policy necessarily. Um, with them having to deal with uh, the um, massacre in Rwanda and with like the United States and the UN not um, intervening soon enough. Um, also, uh, the um, ethnic cleansing in um, Rwanda. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bosnia. Yeah. Yeah. And those countries too, which like showed like with foreign policy, he wasn't that great in in the first okay. years. I, I think when you think about the Balkans, though, uh, one of the legacies of the Clinton presidency is that even though he didn't have full congressional authorization, he eventually did take action. Uh, in the Bosnian crisis and later in the Kosovo crisis. And in each case, uh, by military and diplomatic intervention, uh, put an end to ethnic cleansing. Uh, We have the Dayton Accords and everything in his first term. So there's some lasting uh, legacies there for his administration. Yes. I mean, you could say that he has some successes in foreign policy, especially in Northern Ireland. Okay. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement, the Good Friday Accord, sending uh, Mitchell there, that, that settlement existing to this day. And I think as you read in newspapers, uh, part of the debate in the United Kingdom regarding Brexit is what to do about the, the borders there uh, with Northern Ireland and everything. 
even though there was all that burst of energy when Clinton was elected, a generational change, the politics of the era, I think, are marked by the pushback against him. For many people in the Republican Party, for many conservatives in the country, for older Americans, particularly for many Republicans who had had five or six presidential election victories, many people never saw the Clinton election or his presidency as legitimate. Uh, They talked about his evading the draft. Uh, They talked about uh, marijuana use, things like that. Uh, For many people on the right, there was immediate contempt for Bill Clinton, particularly when you look at the rise of talk radio and personalities on talk radio who unrelentingly would go after both Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, leading to stories about people being killed mysteriously, people disappearing mysteriously. You had the very sad uh, suicide of Vince Foster, a Clinton friend, in the first year of his presidency. Accusations on talk radio that somehow the Clintons were behind that. So politically, he inherited a great movement against him on on talk radio. We've... uh We've talked uh, at other points about this this concept of the the permanent campaign. Uh, you know the, the way that, that uh, beginning in the in the seventies and really crescendoing more in the eighties, but then reaching kind of a uh, uh, a point of uh, perfection of the art in the nineties. Politics uh, became ever present uh, in, in the in the act of governing. You know, it, it once upon a time was the case. You know, we, we talk all the time about. Some things that are that are uh, the same uh, ever since uh, America was founded, and, and some things that have that have changed with regards to the presidency. The permanent campaign would be a, a great example of something that is that is different, and uh, you know had had market effect on on the Clinton presidency, and he, he certainly in his administration participated in it in it very willfully. But the the idea that, that once upon a time <clears throat> politics was about elections. And then an election would occur, and politics would would obviously never completely stop. But there would be a a genuine and, and bona fide effort to to uh, to try to to work across uh, uh, differences and, and build consensus a little bit outside of the the hot glare of the political lights. And uh, with the advent of of uh, you know different means of communication, you know, quite literally, cable TV. Um, it became easier to, to continue to 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 mount the campaign even once a once an election was 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 finished, and uh, Clinton himself and his administration and his political apparatus perfected that art. But at, in the in the same moment, the Republicans were really perfecting the art as well, and so they they never missed a a moment to to. Critique him, or or find uh, find wedge issues that that could derail him from from aspirations he may have uh, politically and policy wise. And similarly, uh, the the Clinton White House was was working against the the Republican uh, Republican Congress in the same way. Let's talk about some early missteps in the first months of his presidency that really meant he had no honeymoon period. Uh, do you remember reading about any of those problems early on, some early decisions and appointment announcements that gave him a lot of bad press? Yes. Um, 
particularly with uh, he repealed the ability for LGBTQ um, members to join the military. Um, it kind of got a lot of pushback from Congress, and you know, ended up happening was he tried to negotiate with Congress, and this is where you get the don't ask, don't tell policy. Okay. But that was kind of like a pushback from Congress telling him, kind of like, hey, you know, this is not the era at the time, and it's kind of reflecting back on like the politics of the era. Still, kind of you know, you're still transitioning from a very conservative time to you know mm-hmm. more lenient to a liberal aspect of social issues. Yeah, he didn't actually repeal their ability to serve. He made an announcement that would make it possible for them to officially serve, and there was great pushback from the military and key people in Congress. He was fulfilling a campaign promise, but he did that early on, which maybe in terms of what you know about attitudes today seems like a thousand years ago. Public opinion has changed so much on this social issue in this last decade and everything. But back in 1993, a very different set of attitudes existed. And by doing that so early, you get the pushback. And then his decision to adopt something called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was politically defeating both to the gay community that wanted an open opportunity to serve and to people opposed to them serving. So it turned out to be a disaster for him politically. But what about some appointments that created great embarrassment? And and this goes back to the issue we talked about one day in terms of presidential transition periods, the importance of clearly vetting people and finding out about the individuals you're going to appoint. What happened in terms of appointments to the attorney general's office? which ironically ties into a controversial issue we have today regarding immigration. His first two appointments to be attorney general, the individuals appointed had to withdraw when it turned out that they had employed as nannies individuals who were illegal immigrants. And to to connect a dot there, uh, the permanent campaign and the appointment process Republicans uh, realized it was a, a chance to, to find uh, uh, kinks in the armor, so to speak, and, and uh, um, embarrass the president uh, early on. Uh, it's, it's you know a, a similar thing that, that uh, Democrats have, have done to, to Republicans as well. But but in a different era, uh, it may be that, that political appointees might not have gotten as much intense political scrutiny uh, as, as really was happening in 93. And in terms of the organization of the White House, I think you've read about how early on things were rather chaotic, that meetings would go on forever, uh, schedules were constantly messed up. Uh, early on, uh, one Democratic member of Congress uh, talking to another Democratic member of Congress said, if you're unhappy about an announcement from Bill Clinton today, don't worry about it. He might change his view tomorrow. So uh, there was no strong chief of staff at that time, no discipline process. That comes later in his administration. And, and he got a lot of bad press from that. And uh, uh, keep in mind the, the historical context there. Uh, Republicans have, have been uh, relentlessly holding the White House with, with just a couple exceptions uh, since, since the days of Richard Nixon. It was Republicans that really um, created the, the concept of the modern chief of staff. Uh, Jimmy Carter had, in 76 had famously, uh, as you guys might remember, had, had 
uh, pushed back on the idea of the need for a chief of staff and wanted to try to run things a little bit differently. Uh, ultimately, that, that didn't work out so well for him, and he, and he uh, used more of a, a routine chief of staff model. But Bill Clinton is the, the first Democrat elected president, uh, other than Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, all the way back to, to LBJ. And so the, the chief of staff model that, that Eisenhower had, had uh, used so well and then, then uh, you know, Reagan had really mastered was just not quite in the, the, the DNA of the Democratic Party when it, when it took the White House in 1992. And a, a sequence of embarrassments, some driven by disorganization, eventually prompted Clinton to, to change his mind and, and to start to, to really... Uh, embrace the the strong form chief of staff model, you know, and that that's what's endured all the way up to today for both parties uh, since uh, Republicans and Democrats. Though it's under pressure again with with Donald Trump being interestingly wary of the the strong chief of staff model. Before we get to uh, some of the political defeats of his first two years in office. Let's talk about some early policy victories for Bill Clinton in those first two years. Yes. Uh, you had NAFTA, signing of NAFTA. That's right. That's right. What I, from doing the readings, what I got was that, uh, what's his name, uh, Al Gore went on uh, Larry King and he debated Ross Perot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, the arguments that they were having was able to have persuasion on the American people to support them. It got more support from Republicans, of course, but Democrats eventually did support it. Like kind of going back to that new Democrat idea that he had of, you know, free markets, which ultimately kind of goes traditionally against what Democrats like uh, Lyndon B. Johnson and so forth, and FDR, you know, instituted in terms of trade. Okay. The NAFTA victory was uh, purchased with great Republican support and considerable Democratic opposition. It had been negotiated by George Herbert Walker Bush, and Clinton pursued it, and it was an early victory for his administration. And, uh, like... Like some things uh, with with Bill Clinton and his administration, at the time and, and the years uh, you know quickly after, by and large, uh, to most most Americans seemed like a a good thing, and uh, it, it has subsequently you know like like free trade in general begun to be viewed with a much more more wary eye you know, by 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 the country. Any other uh, early policy decisions that were successful? Yes. Just going back to foreign policy, um, I think one aspect that I kind of just that always admires me of American institutions of government is, you know, when Saddam Hussein threatened to assassinate, there was a plot to assassinate mm-hmm. President Bush. He was not reluctant to act on it, and he, you know, assembled an uh, airstrike on intelligence facilities. Um, in Iraq. So I thought, you know, just kind of like while there is politics that divides the two, there's kind of like this absence that we're still one five one. One team one five, so Yeah, and and that that incident actually is you know, one of a, a series of things that ultimately brought uh George Bush Senior, Bush forty one, and Bill Clinton uh to the point of, of being genuinely good friends. You know, the, the, these these two people who were Hot political adversaries uh, losing a presidential election is, is pretty um, pretty tough for the soul. Um, wound up being being genuine friends later in life, and yeah, it is a remarkable thing. 
And with great Democratic support, he managed to get through Congress something that Congress had passed and George Herbert Walker had, Herbert Walker Bush had vetoed, and that was the Family Leave Act. Uh, the United States being the only wealthy, industrial, democratic country in the world does, that does not provide an extensive program for family members who have children to have leave and get paid. The act did not require that people who took this leave get paid, but at least it gave them leave, at least if you worked in an area where there was so, a certain number of employees and everything. So that was a, a reward to a long-time democratic platform position. Anything else? Yes. Explain. Uh, I'm not too sure on it, but I know it was uh, gun, uh, gun yeah. control reform. Uh, you have in the Clinton administration a ban on assault weapons, and uh, things uh, continue to get debated on that area because eventually that ban was not renewed. One other thing: deficit reduction. Remember, Clinton had campaigned on a big middle-class tax cut, but the economy was already out of the recession. The Federal Reserve was more concerned about the deficit. <coughs> Clinton put to Congress a controversial proposal to raise taxes on the wealthiest Americans and to cut spending in some areas. That passed on a purely partisan vote. Dick Cheney and the, uh, excuse me, not Dick Cheney, Al Gore in the Senate had to break the, the tie vote. And that act, of course, infuriated Republicans because it involved increasing taxes, but it's important to his presidency later on because it helped reduce the deficit that he had, had already inherited. Uh, and and uh, to, to put things in some, some macro-historical perspective, when we talked about Eisenhower, <clears throat> you probably remember that, that one of the things that, that – uh, was especially relevant about Eisenhower was uh, he came in the in the wake of, of all of, of FDR's reforms uh, and uh, uh, and social programs and the Republican Party at that point was very tempted to to just actively oppose things like Social Security uh, and and the expansion of of the federal government in general and Eisenhower a Republican uh, and his administration chose to essentially Embrace the the uh, the innovations that the that the FDR administration had had made and acquiesce uh, and and even uh, enthusiastically uh, um, acknowledge that that America now had a a large federal government and and the fact that an opposition party had had embraced that that the, the Republicans had embraced that democratic idea went a long way to, to essentially locking in the idea. Uh, for generations to come, that, that the federal government was going to be a, a large, large uh, operation engaged in, in, in lots of social endeavors as well as, you know, more classic uh, national security endeavors. Similarly, Bill Clinton comes in the wake of the, the Reagan revolution, uh, the effort to, to uh, significantly reduce taxes, uh, the effort to at least control the, the growth of the federal government, especially with regards to, to social programs. And Bill Clinton, uh, the first Democrat to be in office, uh, you know, since that, that Reagan revolution. Similarly, uh, like with Eisenhower, essentially embraced the Reagan revolution. You know, a, a Democrat, uh, rather than taking office and immediately trying to 
to uh, swell the, the federal government, uh, instantaneously raise, raise taxes uh, very dramatically, took a, a more middle path. And uh, that, <clears throat> interestingly enough, is like with Eisenhower's embrace of, of FDR policies <clears throat> or the policy framework, Clinton's embrace of the Reagan policy framework has essentially been the, the default setting for, for America subsequently. Except for one big exception involving his greatest political defeat in the first two years, health care. Uh, he hoped to be the president who would provide the United States with a comprehensive universal system of health care coverage to join much of the rest of the world. He appointed his wife, Hillary Clinton, to lead that effort, and it leads to total defeat. Why was it defeated? How was it defeated? What went wrong? Because for Bill Clinton, I think for him, that, in his mind, would have been the crowning achievement as president, to be able to do that, to succeed where other presidents had failed. What politically went wrong? Yes. Um, well, going into it, his staff advised him not to because he campaigned for um, national service and welfare reform, not health care. So they warned him he was going to have a tough battle going into it. Okay. Yeah. Um, the 1994 election also took a toll on that. Absolutely. Had, where he had to compromise with, uh, with both Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats. Because there were some Democrats that even were not on the side. This failed effort allowed Republicans to paint, paint him as a typical Democrat, not a new Democrat. And think of the politics of it. A large commission that met under conditions of secrecy. So that... Even Democrats in Congress were, in many cases, cut out of the loop, and they had their own ideas. Instead, this commission, headed by his wife, develops an extremely complicated plan, 1,300 pages long, that involved a combination of some marketplace forces, all kinds of government regulations, managed competition, a plan few people could understand, and immediate fierce opposition to it. Even though at first public opinion was sympathetic, the ads organized by a coalition of insurance industry people, uh, the Harriet and Louise ads, helped to erode support for that. And eventually, it's defeated. And, and, and um, <clears throat> in this, this category of the permanent campaign, uh, uh, th- these were... Uh, ads by, by Republican forces appealing to the American people. So it was not, not just kind of a, a conflict within the halls of Congress that ultimately, ultimately defeated uh, Bill and, and Hillary Clinton's uh, health care reform aspirations. It was, it was the, the permanent campaign being waged kind of a, across the country uh, and over the airwaves that, that uh, eroded the support, too. The commission seemed to exclude major stakeholders in the healthcare industry, a major part of the American economy. Finley excluded, they struck back. Note when we get to the Obama presidency next week and we talk about the passing of the Affordable Care Act, his efforts early on to enlist support from people in the healthcare professions and everything. 
The 94 election, a bloodbath. For the first time in 40 years, Republicans would get control of both houses of Congress. Yeah, and to, to get your, your brain ready to, to contemplate 94, think about 92 again. Um, uh, a, uh, a president who's 46 years old uh, in a new generation, Democrats in, in control, who's a Democrat? Democrats in control of, of uh, both houses of Congress. Uh, it feels like a, a new day, uh, uh, certainly for, for those... Uh, uh, strongly sympathetic to what was going on, but a new d- new day was coming, and, and that you know all sorts of, of great changes were going to be ushered in. However, uh, Bill Clinton, for all his his appetite for the White House uh, uh, throughout his his uh, adolescence and, and early adulthood, uh, for all of his political experience in Arkansas, he did not, and, and nationwide uh, in the Democratic Party, he did not actually have any. Any Washington experience uh, when he when he showed up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and that is what what really came to bite him uh, in those those first two years was he, he was he was not able to to nimbly navigate with with a, a Democratic Congress. Uh, Democratic president was not able to nimbly navigate with a Democratic Congress. After that 94 election, all kinds of experts and. People writing newspaper articles were talking about Bill Clinton, <clears throat> one-term president. He was through. That uh, the Republicans now ran Congress. Newt Gingrich, the new Speaker of the House, would be a kind of prime minister. And that uh, Clinton was now going to be irrelevant. How does Bill Clinton navigate that situation to make a comeback? Or... How maybe do Republicans make some tactical errors that help him to make that comeback? He's going to get reelected in 96. What makes that possible? What goes on there? So there's one very sad event that, that, uh, you know, during which uh, Bill Clinton performs very admirably that, that, that begins to, to change sensibilities. One aspect of that, yeah. before I answer the question that okay. I said, is that uh, Hillary Clinton, in fact, uh, called Mr. Dick Morris, uh, what's his name, campaign manager. Dick um, Morris. Yes. Um, and he comes down and he's like, okay, well, we're going to do this. And he's Republican-centrist uh, individual as well. He tells them that you're going to have to rule, in a, or not rule, um, run the government in a centrist aspect. And um, they called it the third way. They kind of advertised that. Another term, triangulation. Triangulation. Uh, Morris and Clinton hit upon a very clever strategy. The president would uh, tactfully uh, separate himself from some aspects of the Democratic agenda, but still oppose aspects of the Republican agenda. He would play the two sides off against each other, and in a sense, he had Republican help. Having achieved control of Congress, they pressed aspects of their contract with America. They started to develop budgets with big cuts to Medicare, to cut back on education and environmental programs. Clinton resisted. He would veto those budgets. And in the fall and winter of 95-96, you had government closedowns. Now, think constitutionally for a moment. 
If the government closes down because there's no budget, you could say both the president who's vetoed the budget and the Congress are responsible. But public opinion counts for a lot in terms of how people perceive this. Overwhelmingly, Clinton won the public relations battle. Clinton emphasized, hey, I'm trying to balance the budget, but I don't want to cut education. I don't want to cut Medicare. I don't want to cut the environment. I want to help children and old people. The Republicans took a beating in public opinion. Also at the time, that fierce talk radio assault on Bill and Hillary Clinton began to rub much of the public the wrong way. So suddenly, he's standing up to people who want to cut popular programs. This is the way to come back, along with the economy taking and, off. And uh, so, so, the, the, so <clears throat> political winds are changing. Economy uh, is beginning to, to boom. Uh, you know, we, we have the... <clears throat> The early manifestations of the the internet age, uh, beginning uh, you know around ninety four, ninety five, uh, which to you all seems like uh, Neolithic history. Uh, the concept of a, a world without the internet. Um, something that that I, I think future historians, really really uh, closely looking through the, the Clinton presidency, will pay attention to as well is is something that happened in the in the spring of of ninety five. Uh, um, the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, an act of, of domestic terrorism uh, in which um, um, countless lives were, were lost in a horrific bombing. Uh, before that happened, uh, Bill Clinton had struggled with some of the, they could be called the atmospherics of the office, uh, trouble, had, had trouble with, with the broad American public thinking of him in a uh, the presidential terms that they say uh, that people conceptualize, say Ronald Reagan, uh, in the face of a horrible tragedy, uh, he he uh, he was that 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 source of solace, that that soothing presence uh, uh, that the country craved at, at that at that moment, and and that, as much as anything, could could be the the pinpoint spot to to uh, to really identify as as when. The Bill Clinton, uh, who you know, who left office with a approval rating uh, above sixty percent, began to to emerge. Was was there in, in that spring of ninety five in Oklahoma City? Yes. That was so, fine. Uh, and so an aspect. So Bill Clinton was fighting back through vetoing, and he won public opinion. So in some essence, did Republicans kind of fail on their promises with the contract of America to America? Because they kind of failed to reduce government size and stuff, um, overall bring down taxes and all so forth. So that they failed the public. From their point of view, the contract said that they would propose and pass in Congress certain proposals. A lot of those proposals were vetoed by uh, President Clinton. They also made some internal changes in the rules in Congress in terms of how the committees worked and seniority and how long you would serve as chair and things like that. So they did fulfill many parts of their contract. Down the road, though, uh, particularly by the end of the presidency of George W. Bush, uh, when you get early into the Obama era, you have the emergence of the Tea Party, where the Tea Party people are going to go back and critique the Republican Party itself, particularly the party of 
George W. Bush in terms of some of his programs and everything. So out there in the public, there would be the sense for the Tea Party people, the Republican Party did not deliver. If there's, if there's a, a thing uh, about American politics that history uh, often teaches, it's, it's how, how quickly sentiments can change. You know, so uh, uh, Bill Clinton elected in 92 with, with uh, momentum that felt historic, then humbled in 94 uh, with, with a rebuke that, that felt historic, and then re-elected in 96 in what uh, of, of recent elections probably counts as, as one that was just never really close. Uh, runs against Bob Dole, who had been a longtime senator, uh, uh, vice presidential running mate to, to Gerald Ford in, in 76, uh, but the 96 election, you know, which in, in 1994, you might have thought, well, this is when Bill Clinton's going to get his, his comeuppance. And, and uh, uh, you know, he never, never achieved liftoff and, and uh, you know, Republicans have seized control of Congress. Uh, there's no way he's going to win in 96. And, and 96, remarkably, uh, in part because the economy is booming, in part because... Uh, Bill Clinton and Dick Morris strike upon the, the triangulation approach in part because he, he achieved presidential gravitas in the wake of Oklahoma City. 96 is a, is a cakewalk uh, as, as presidential elections go. However, uh, to his great chagrin, he didn't cross the 50% threshold on the popular vote in 96 either, e- even though the, the election was so... so uh, so relatively easy and straightforward for him. Ross Perot fitfully ran again in, in 96 without quite the, the enthusiasm or the oomph uh, of 92. But that was enough to, to keep, keep Clinton from getting, getting more than 49% of the vote. After his election, re-election in 96, in 1997, he strikes a deal with the Republicans in Congress. Uh, a budget act that will reduce the deficit even more in the future, the Balanced Budget Act. That, along with the incredibly booming economy of the 90s, will lead eventually to a balanced budget, which uh, has long since disappeared uh, as far as federal fiscal policy is concerned. A a rarity, a rarity, a unicorn, uh, the balanced budget. In 97, things look great for Clinton, don't they? He's won that re-election, has that economy going for him. He has that deal on balancing the budget. But then we get into 98, there's what we talked about last time in class when we covered major presidential scandals, right? Uh, The Lewinsky scandal, the eventual impeachment of the president, everything like that. We don't want to cover all that material again, but politically speaking, what are your conclusions about that whole episode in terms of political lessons? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Uh, ben Bree. If you're going to get into a scandal, just admit it and be upfront with it right away. Don't try and cover it up because it's usually the cover up that gets you in trouble. Or more trouble than what the interest The famous Wait. lying uh, about the affair, something that is going to always tarnish him along with the impeachment. Uh, you know, his legacy is never going to be able to escape what happened in that respect. Marie? Um, just the use of, like, 
executive privilege and how like how that is portrayed to the American people too in terms of like character and like again honesty. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the political aspect, it kind of backfired our Republicans with all the congressional hearings and the impeachment uh, trials and so forth because the 98 election came and Republicans lost. And so it kind of like pushed back on Republicans because he was so popular with the American people. Yeah, going into the 98 off-year election, the assumption would be that the Republicans would pick up seats in the House of Representatives, but actually they lost seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, there's a lesson here that's similar to the lesson of 95-96 in terms of that budget showdown. Overreaching in politics. Republicans understood the public was against impeachment overwhelmingly. When they finally vote for impeachment, Clinton is at the high point of his popularity. There aren't the votes in the Senate to remove him from office. Overreaching. And he survives. With lasting implications, though, for his legacy in terms of matters of personal integrity and everything. Anything else about the last two years in office or his legacy in general before we move on and talk about George W. Bush? Postway? So, by, you know, with Congress and him repealing the glass steel, would that kind of transform some of the events that we had in 2008 with the economy crashing? Uh, there's certainly so. So, uh, whether the, the, the Clinton era uh, repeal of, of various uh, banking statutes and, and banking regulations contributed meaningfully to, to 2008 is a question that. that uh, Plenty of people feel very strongly about, you know, that that, that uh, they unquestionably did. Uh, um, um, Bill Clinton and others would would say that that uh, um, that they were relatively unrelated, but it, it was a uh, an era in which Clinton, rather than somewhat uh, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, somewhat embracing the Reagan revolution, rather rather than tightening regulation kind of a, across the board. Uh, saw fit to, to, to loosen regulation in, in somewhat a, a Reagan-esque fashion uh, in, in any number of sectors. And so that's, that's one, you know, potentially deep legacy of the, the Clinton years that, that, that people, people will, will debate for years to come. Um, relationship with Russia is not something that we, and the, the, the former Soviet Union is not something we've talked about a great deal. But, but the, the dominating issue in foreign policy and, and uh, global politics for, for two generations was uh, uh, the Cold War, uh, you know, which by 92 uh, and Clinton's election had largely, uh, you know, and even its, its long tentacles kind of drawn, drawn uh, to, a, to a full close. And pe- people debate now whether Clinton could have in his White House done more to, to help Russia onto a, a strong road of, of democracy and, and reform, or whether, you know, what, what's transpired in Russia since was just uh, an inevitable phenomenon. But that's that's certainly one aspect of, of Clinton's eight years in office that, that Russia, uh, you know, step by step kind of drifted towards where it is now, rather than rather than turning into something else. And uh, a, a big thing is, and here. Uh, Andrew Jackson, in a way, is is maybe a a parallel, but so much of 
Bill Clinton's personal conduct while, while he was in office felt debatable, and, and people who probably would not debate it today felt, felt uh, you know, like it was a, a very debatable thing, uh, and, and uh, people took partisan sides, whereas in the, the longer lens of history, it, it seems less, less like something that, that anybody would, would strongly defend, uh, in, in somewhat the same way that with Andrew Jackson in his day, uh, his, his, uh, his, his um, policy towards Native Americans felt debatable, uh, and in, in retrospect feels, feels very much not debatable. Certainly for anyone who is president of a major corporation these days, or president of a university, if you are in that powerful position and have even consensual sex with a younger intern, you're going to get fired or you're going to resign in disgrace. Uh, Clinton got through that. He had the economy and maybe some different attitudes than what exists today. And all. Yes? Uh, Clinton's legacy always quick to bring up the fact of his extramarital affairs. But, I mean, he seems like the only president he will really bring it up about when there's plenty of evidence on the other presidents, especially like FDR. Or John. Yeah. Uh, a lot of digging back to other presidents. Uh, we do have a time issue here, so we need to talk about George W. Bush, who certainly grows up in a very different environment than Bill Clinton, right? So again, grows up in born, fantastic circumstances. Born, born one month apart, but uh, almost in you know, uh, uh, well, not even almost, in profoundly different different circumstances. Born into luxury. A famous American family going to the top institutions without having to worry about getting scholarships or working his way through the system uh, of higher education in terms of working while you're also trying to study, something I know many students face today uh, very, in a very difficult way. Uh, what stands out about his growing up, though, that you think is important to understanding his presidency? Anything? Yes. Growing up, I would say most of like his military service, uh, the Air Force collect. National Guard. National Guard. Yeah. National Sorry, Guard. Which would always be a source of controversy because uh, he served in the Texas National Guard. He did not go to Vietnam, and uh, that would surface in uh, both of his campaigns. Anything else about his growing up? Yeah. Just from looking at his father as a role model. Definitely yeah. probably pushed him into learning to run for president and uh, taking office in other um, branches of the government. Yeah. A legacy there, a set of experiences, an example, a role model, um, but also some difficult issues growing up. We, we know about his uh, first three decades that he wasn't exactly in his personal life uh, what his father might have expected. Yeah, so, so yeah, one, one more contrast with Clinton that's interesting is uh, they're born into different circumstances. Uh, Clinton, born into uh, much more difficult circumstances, is, is the, the, the shining star, uh, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in his, in his school, school days and in, in his early, early professional years, whereas uh, George W. is kind of uh, wayward. Uh, might be a way to way to put it uh, deep into deep into adult life.
certainly if you read what Bush himself has said about his life, he would make the observation if he were here in class today that in his 1940s, when he embraced his evangelical Christian faith, that that was a turning point in his life. It's important to his presidency when you think about his emphasis in domestic policy on faith-based initiatives in terms of making it easier for private sector faith-based organizations to receive federal funds to do community service work, to deal with addiction and things like that. That's, That's important to his life story and his presidency. Anything else? Anything else about his growing up? Okay. Yes. I'll never forget this, but um, I, was, I was watching the speech that he gave, and it was on the news, and he said that he went to Harvard, and he said that it's okay if you guys have A's, but it's also okay if you have C students. And he was a C student at Harvard, which I thought was pretty funny. Okay. Liam? Also a member of that uh, secret society, probably the Skull and Bones. The Skull and Bones, that's right. Uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, George W. Bush, John Kerry, all members of that special secret society. Uh, I think what's interesting about Bush's image in the public, though, was here's a person from such an elite background, such opportunity, who, basically growing up in Texas, develops a kind of style that makes him able to relate to people that you would normally think individuals born to that class would not be able to to do that and everything. And and, and that's part of his background. What we we know, of course, uh, he makes an early run for Congress. He he loses that first election. He's going to work on his father's campaigns, things like that. He's going to go into business. He's going to be partial owner of the Texas Rangers and everything like that. But When you think about Texas politics, he pulls off a stunning upset to start his victories in Texas and then to the White House. Well, and to to, uh, um, put that uh, stunning upset in context, uh, but for Bill Clinton defeating George Bush the elder uh, in in, uh, 1992, almost certainly the case that, that George W., would not have had a, a clear pathway to, to high-level elected politics, uh, that it would have been uh, just uh, difficult and un- unusual for a, the, the son of a sitting president to, to run for, for governor of, of, uh, of Texas uh, in 94. Uh, if, if, uh, so if, if not for, for Bill Clinton winning in 92, um, George W. might not have become become the figure we know. One political lesson we talked about early in the semester was the danger of a political party underestimating a challenger. We saw that with the Democrats, with Ronald Reagan when he first ran for governor in California. We see that with George W. Bush when he takes on Ann Richards in Texas, Ann Richards, a popular governor, a charismatic governor, a person who had certainly irritated the Bush family when in a convention speech she made fun of George W. Bush's father by saying that he was born with a silver uh, foot in his mouth. People do not think George W. Bush can win, but he wins. He does his homework. He focuses on certain issues in terms of education reform, welfare reform. He pulls the upset 
and then gets reelected in a landslide. They underestimated him. I think Bill Clinton would later observe uh, during Bush's first term in office and is talking to other Democrats that Democrats underestimated George W. Bush at their risk, at their risk and everything. But why is it that he's able to get the nomination? After all, there's somebody like John McCain who would like to be president. McCain is going to try to get that nomination in 2000. McCain has all this experience. What does Bush have going for him besides the family name? was familiar. I think it was like nice for like the American people to be like, oh, like we kind of know like what he like stands for without even like needing to like listen to the news or watch something because I think a lot of people like compared him to his father. And I think that familiarity was really like a good platform for him to like work off of and build from. Okay. Uh, his personality, he was more laid back. He seemed like a guy you would enjoy hanging out with while Al Gore kind of seemed like someone you'd rather pull teeth than hang out with. <clears throat> He kind of also had a centrist approach to politics. He was trying to say it was a um, conservatism. What was the word? Compassionate. Compassionate conservatism. So, you know, he's kind of able to pull other people that, you know, somebody like McCain would not be able to grasp. Not only the name, but when a party is out of power for a couple of terms, they really want to get the White House back and... George W. Bush was perceived as more moderate than some other possible Republican candidates. And at that time, Republicans controlled most of the governorships in in the state, in the big states except for California. Those governors early on endorsed him. Plus, Bush had worked hard to cultivate the support of key conservatives in the Republican Party in Congress. So he had the weight of the establishment behind him. in uh, an object lesson of what, what money and politics can do, and then a subject, subsequent lesson in what money and politics can't do. Uh, in, in the 2000 race, George W. was the Republican that could raise, at the time, astronomical figures uh, in the primary. And, and that had the effect of, kind of in the, in the political term of art, kind of clearing the field. Uh, other candidates couldn't quite they didn't feel like they could compete uh, uh, with, with that kind of fundraising. And so other candidates that might have been uh, strong, at least on paper, uh, also chose not to, not to jump in uh, as robustly as they might otherwise have because of that, that fundraising prowess. Now, uh, fast forward 16 years, uh, George W.'s brother, Jeb, thought that 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 playbook was going to, to work again. And so, uh, you know, those of you who paid close attention to the 16 Republican primary know that, that Jeb raised a gargantuan amount of money on the, the front end of the primary, and yet that, that, didn't, that didn't work uh, in, in 16. Uh, and it, it is fascinating the way money sometimes really does the trick and sometimes it really, it really doesn't. Yes. Yeah. Emily? talking about that, I actually see more of a comparison to Hillary Clinton as opposed to Jeb Bush, because I think there were so many people that did jump into the Republican field that Jeb Bush's name just kind of got lost, and especially with the attacks that Donald Trump made on him, and really getting all that news attention, 
Um, I think the money at that point in time just didn't really help him. But then I think if you look at Hillary Clinton in the Democratic field, you really see people like Elizabeth Warren who didn't jump in and yeah. has now come through this election and has been one of the most like one of the larger names out there and like one of the front runners that we're hearing about the most. And a lot of people were talking about why she wasn't running in 2016. And I think it was because Hillary Clinton jumped in and so many of um, like Democratic donors, like they knew the Clinton name. Not necessarily everybody liked the Clinton name, but it was a name that you knew. It was like a household name and it was easy to get behind. And in, a, in an alternate universe, uh, legions of uh, students... Uh, uh, are very confused about the progression of, of U.S. presidents. Because uh, in an alternate universe, it goes uh, Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush, Clinton, uh, um, Bush, uh, and, and gets uh, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty wonky there. We'll not get into string theory. <laughs> multiple universes today, yes. Um, can I just reflect Postman. back on like, the Texas, how he pressed everyone, mm-hmm. how he pulled out an astonishing victory? Um, you know, in the 2000 election, you had the Political Science Association that pulled out seven scholars that said um, they predicted that Bush would lose the election by like a huge margin, but the end results went completely against what they said. So, uh, 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 two buckets of, of interesting factoid with the 2000 election. Uh, the first of which is, and we, we talked about this, uh, you know, right, right at the right at the start of the fall, but a, a, a quirk of American history that, that may, well has, may well have played out to, to our, our advantage is so many of the, the early presidents did not have male children. So, uh, you know, Washington did not, uh, Adams did, which becomes relevant, but Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, none of them had, had male children. Uh, if, if, if the early presidents had had Male children, we could have, you know, speaking of alternate universes, easily had had some situation in which it became expected, you know, as as happened, you know. So the first president with a male child, uh, John Adams, that that uh, you know, one one of his one of his sons was elected president. You know, if if that had been the the normal pattern early on, uh, it could have could have uh, you know quickly. Pushed American politics into a very different, different, uh, different realm. You know, a lot more like a, a more classic aristocracy. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's obviously very unusual for George W. to be elected um, uh, after his father has has also been president. You know, and John Adams and John Quincy Adams, the only other only other time that that's that's happened. Um, the other bucket of of interesting factoid to me is. There are now, if, if you put the 1876 election to the side, which was contested and complicated for other reasons related to kind of the, the tail end of, of Reconstruction, uh, there, there are four times when there's been a, a difference between the, the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. And the Electoral College vote, you know, has, has, has carried the day. 1824, John Quincy Adams and, and uh, Andrew Jackson... 1888, uh, with uh, um, Grover Cleveland losing to Benjamin Harrison. There'll be a common thread to all these. 2000, uh, with with Gore losing to Bush, and and now 2016 with with Trump beating Hillary. So before 2016, all three of those instances had weirdly 
I don't have any theory here. It's just an interesting coincidence. Weirdly involved um, legacy presidents. Uh, John Quincy Adams wins in a contested one. Uh, Benjamin Harrison, the grandson of, of uh, William Henry Harrison of, of Hampton, Sydney, uh, a, you know, ignominy. And, uh, um, uh, and then, um, and then, then George W. Uh, beating, beating Gore. And that's just a, a fascinating thing, you know, that probably in some uh, way that, that uh, would be hard to completely stitch together just, just underscores the fact that a legacy candidate has a really strong network to, to, to draw on that, 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 can, that can help uh, win an election in a, in a really close-run thing. Then, of course, uh, we get to 16, and it, it breaks the, the pattern I was just talking about, but it's fascinating that a, a legacy candidate is still involved, even if on the, even if on the losing side of the, of the election. Josue, your comment about the predictions uh, of that election, uh, I think we should think about for a moment. Those predictions that Gore would easily win were based upon running statistics about the state of the economy in that election compared to other elections. And when they ran the models, Gore should win. Well, he did win the popular vote, though, (laughs) right? But he didn't win by... Millions, he only won the popular vote by 500,000 for Gore. And then you had, of course, Florida. Now, we talked about the 2000 election in an earlier class, so we'll not cover much of that today. But bear in mind the controversies about that recount in Florida. Bear in mind the disaster for Al Gore that Ralph Nader was on the ballot and picked up 97,000 votes in Florida, most of which would probably have gone to Gore if Nader had not been there siphoning off votes. The Supreme Court decision remains controversial to this day, and it represents a general problem for the judiciary in terms of the controversies we've talked about in another class period, the judiciary becoming less respected, more controversial, being perceived as more political and everything. And uh, as you follow current news... I think we have to wait for a few months because there are a couple of big decisions out there regarding people testifying from the White House, regarding President Trump's taxes. We're going to have to look and see how the judiciary handles that and and what happens in terms of public response and everything. But the uh, uh, thing about 2000, which we've talked about in the past a little bit too, um, like with 96, uh, the election did not feel to America like it was very high stakes. Uh, uh, it, it felt, uh, you know, in 96, it felt like a relatively not high stakes choice, easy choice of Clinton to, to, to the American people. Uh, and in 2000, it felt like uh, uh, George W. And, and Gore were not all that far apart on, on, on policy matters. And, and if you look at the the... Uh, voter participation numbers in '96 and 2000. You, you see that they've 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 dropped off uh, as compared to to uh, a bit of a, a, a strong uptick in '92. Uh, you know, where, where '92 actually has the highest voter participation levels since the 1960s. Um, uh, and but you know, '96, 2000, they're they're kind of in in a in a much softer zone. Uh, but they spike back up again in in '04 and have been kind of rising rising sense. 
Let's talk about George W. Bush's presidency then. Uh, clearly, uh, there's the cloud that hangs over him in terms of not winning a popular vote, but he's determined to push forward with his agenda, and his agenda is a mixture of compassionate conservatism and some old-time basic Republican themes about cutting taxes. So in that first year of office, he does get a major tax cut through. That will become controversial later on with deficits and everything else. But what are some of the other policies he's pursuing uh, early on? We'll, we'll get to 9-11 in a little while. Elise? No child left behind. No child left behind. Remember, as governor of Texas, he had positioned himself as a compassionate conservative, interested in education reform. Uh, here was an opportunity to repeat in Washington what he had done in Texas, working with Democrats. And he works with Senator Kennedy and others that get no child left behind, which at the time had a large amount of bipartisan support. But we've talked about the roller coaster of public opinion in American politics. Moving into the future, that reform that was once basically popular has both people on the left and the right turning against it. Uh, uh, too much testing, uh, too much money, et cetera, et cetera, too much federal regulations. Uh, teachers resisting it, Republicans resisting it and everything. But at the time, it was an important victory that fulfilled a campaign pledge. And, of course, you have his efforts to try to make it easier for faith-based organizations to receive more federal funds. But there's also some political setbacks going on early on. Control of the Senate. Uh, in that first year, a few months into his, preg his presidency, uh, a Republican senator decides to no longer sit with the Republican caucus, and he sits with the Democratic group. That changes control of the Senate. Chairmanship of all the committees will be altered and everything. Then, of course, 9-11 which we talked a bit about in another class when we talked about foreign policy. And Bush's presidency has transformed, right? Uh, think about Bush before 9-11. About 51% job approval rating. Uh, uh, focus on domestic policy. And then everything changes. And the shock the nation faces and the rally around the flag rally around the commander-in-chief, all of a sudden he becomes the most popular president in public opinion polls uh, up into the 90s for a while. Uh, a new adventure for his White House. Observations about the foreign policies that spring from that. Yes? Um, well, I was just going to say like, about like, 9 I think like, one of like, the most like, impactful like, moves that he made was going back to the White House that night rather than staying in Walker. I think like he really, like, led the American people with, like, the belief that, like, we're not going to live in fear. Like, their intent was to scare us, and we're not scared. Like, that's what he was like. I'm not staying in a bunker. I'm going back to the White House because all the other people are not in bunkers, so why should I be in one, too? Uh, we've talked about the rhetorical presidency in another class, but his address on television that night of 9-11 his going to New York City and standing on the rubble, talking to the firemen, explaining the people who would do who did that would be hearing from all of us, his address to Congress, those were all very well received 
public addresses in terms of public opinion. Yes. I think one of the most beautiful things that came out of that tragedy was that Bush had the ability to make Americans not think about Republicans or Democrats. We put that aside and we came together as just Americans to go against this war yes. on terrorism. So. Yeah. Not thinking like Democrats and Republicans coming together, maybe like in string theory, and it seems now to be an alternative universe, doesn't it? Yeah. But for a brief moment, for a brief moment, yes. Um, the two aspects that really came out of that as well is the expansion of the president's power. Oh, yes. And another thing that um, actually it was on, it was in the syllabus and it was in the last exam, but it was the, the video on Cheney. Cheney's um, law. Yeah, Cheney's law, and basically the amount of power that the vice presidency or influence in better aspects was able to have on Bush in terms of foreign policy. We came to terrorism, um, how do you manage um, uh, enemy combatants and uh, Guantanamo Bay and so forth, which just kind of opened up uh, a, uh, an idea of a unitarian presidency. Yeah, yeah and, and to draw a, a parallel with... with uh, with Clinton that we were talking about uh, a minute ago, it's it's 9/11 that that uh, really imbues George W. Uh, in the eyes of Americans and the eyes of, of uh, people across the country with the the qualities of of of, uh, of a president that, it, that he really uh, seems presidential, much like with with Bill Clinton in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, something that he had he had. Uh, struggled with before uh, suddenly kind of uh, snapped into focus uh, that, that the American people really thought of Bill Clinton from that point forward as the president and, and uh, 9/11 forward is is really the the moment when when that that happens with with uh, with W too and did ordinary people think in that moment that the person that they had rallied behind would leave office? with only about a 33% or so uh, popularity rating, uh, leaving office extremely unpopular. The roller coaster ride that many presidents seem to experience during their time in office. Let's talk a little bit about the expansion of presidential power. And we had a class early on where we talked about the unitary executive theory that had developed currency that was fully articulated by Dick Cheney and others. Uh, those early decisions, uh, Congress gives Bush a blank check in authorizing the use of force against anyone who was associated with those attacks or anyone who might attack us. Uh, Bush is going to take that as justification for later actions that are going to become much more controversial. The fateful decision urged upon him by many of his advisors to link al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Afghanistan to Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Early on in cabinet meetings, right after the 9-11 attack, Bush had rejected that. But by the time you get to 2002, suddenly Bush is leaning in the direction that we are going to deal with Saddam Hussein. And you have uh, a year and a half uh, uh, discussion about whether to go after Saddam Hussein, invade Iraq, and Bush signs off on that. 
with all the debates about so-called links to terrorism and, of course, weapons of mass destruction. And we talked in another class about how that story turned out. And with the invasion of Iraq, you have occupation, right? Go back and read newspaper stories about what administrative officials were saying at the time of the invasion. This will be a fast war. It'll be over in months or weeks. Uh, The Iraqis uh, will put together a new government. And for some of the more optimistic people supporting this, uh, Iraq would become a thriving democracy, a Western ally, and by bringing democracy to Iraq, the whole Middle East would be transformed. Well, it did get transformed in some ways, but it didn't go well, right? Uh, we still have people in Iraq. Uh, the cost to human lives, American lives, Iraqi lives, uh, the disruption of balance of power uh, by different players in the Middle East, uh, all working to the advantage of the Iranians and everything. What else should we add about that fateful decision, though, in terms of what's... For George W. Bush, the country is still behind him to get reelected in 2004, this time winning a majority of the vote. He wins by three million votes. He defeats John Kerry. Uh, he had had the successful midterm election in 2002 where uh, Republicans had picked up seats, uh, a, a big thing in terms of normal midterm elections. But beginning in 2005, 2006, what is going wrong besides the fact that the war in Iraq seems to be going on? There's this insurgency, all the violence, everything like that. Yes? The economy was failing. Well, the economy is slowing down, but it's going to be December 07 when technically the recession begins and you have the financial collapse in, in, in the fall of, of uh, oh, <laughs> later in the fall, okay, in 08. So uh, what else is going wrong for George Bush? Yeah. There's a, so many legal cases being presented to the court. Okay, there, there are setbacks in terms of court decisions. I, I guess we need to talk about the whole issue of civil liberties. We, we talked about, of course, the, row, the war in Iraq. Uh, we've seen throughout this course in looking at the American presidency that in times of international crises or war, not only does a lot of power go to the president, but something tends to happen in terms of civil liberties. Remember John Adams and the Alien and Sedition Acts? Remember Woodrow Wilson and the laws passed by Congress there and the people who went to jail and everything? <coughs> Franklin Roosevelt, the internment of Japanese Americans. When it comes to what happens after 9-11, you have... Bush's decision to treat people captured on the battlefield differently than according to the Geneva Convention. You have the controversial decisions about enhanced interrogation, torture. You have secret surveillance of Americans uh, conducted uh, uh, by the government. All kinds of things are going on there, uh, plus some Supreme Court decisions uh, telling the Bush administration that your 
military tribunals uh, are unconstitutional. Now, Congress is going to go back and legislate in such a way that is going to allow Bush to do some of the things he had been doing, but increase controversy. And what often happens in American history is years after the panic and the reaction, the shock of conflict and war, people begin to recover from a kind of, they have a hangover or they recover from it. They, they think to themselves, you know, should we have done those things? Think of how we now think about internment of Japanese Americans. Think of how we now think about uh, enhanced interrogation, waterboarding. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in, in, in a, a, a similar vein, um, playing forward from 9-11, uh, the Bush administration would contend that they had a, a, a defensible cause of action to, to uh, a rationale that was strong to, 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 to begin the Iraq war. Uh, in retrospect, it, it seems uh, much more faulty, you know, that the, that the rationale was, was not strong. But they, they really do feel that, that, that in the run-up to it, uh, it, it was the, the sensible even the the uh, the hard but but brave course of action that that had to be pursued, and it's it's this uh, it is this endlessly fascinating quirk of of history that that um, things in historical perspective can look very different than they do in the you know the lived moment uh, leading up to it. You know, so the 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 um, the national security considerations around civil liberties, uh, you know, in the wake of 9-11 felt in that hot moment, um, uh, I'd say even to most people, like, like they were quite sensible. Uh, but in retrospect, they, they, look, they look very different. And um, um, that's, that's the, the constant uh, pivot that, that uh, you know, a, an administration in office has to actually be, be contemplating, too. Yeah, if you put yourself in the shoes of the people in the White House at that time, uh, they believed, and so many experts went on TV and said, this is only the beginning of more attacks. Uh, I think if you went back and looked at recordings of television news programs at the time and talk shows, there would be experts on saying that, yeah, uh, sooner or later a terrorist organization is going to get their hands on a nuclear bomb, and they're going to put it in a container, and it's going to show up in an American port, and we're going to lose an American city. And the Bush administration basically believed they would do anything to prevent that happening. Bear in mind uh, something you might not read about too often. Right after 9-11, you had the anthrax attacks. So the whole thing about terrorism, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, it all gets tied together. And for George Bush and Dick Cheney, 9-11 had happened on their watch. Was it going to happen again? And they went in a certain direction that had all kinds of consequences that we're living with today, whether it's in Afghanistan or uh, Iraq or Syria. And and like like with Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton's legacy, it's it's uh, open to speculation how how deeper history will will uh, reflect on the the uh, uh, 
the Bush the Bush years. Um, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, at least two things that would have been very hard to have have uh, stopped uh, beforehand: nine eleven and and Katrina. You know, but both both these these disasters at an epic scale that that it's difficult to to perhaps hold hold somebody responsible for at least the fact that they happen. That the aftermath is a is a different different thing. Um, then you've got the the '08 crash, uh, more debatable as to whether that was something that could have been stopped. You know, to what extent that was something that that the Bush administration had had given rise to that, that it had deeper roots. Um, but just right there, you've got three of of if you were drawing up a list of the the 20 worst things that have domestically happened to to America uh, over over time. You, you've got three three contenders for that top 20 list: 9/11, Katrina, uh, and the Great Recession in 08. That's that's a lot for an administration to to grapple with. You layer the the Iraq War on top of that, and uh, with with it being as as debatable as as it is as to whether that was wise but that that that's uh that is a lot that that the administration the bush administration was was um saying grace over and, and you know what what history will will think is 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 a little bit hard to say you know in in the way that that harry truman as we've talked about you know left office uh Tail, tail between his legs, uh, with with incredibly low approval ratings, uh, and nobody thought that the subsequent years would would look at him favorably. Uh, and yet, Harry Truman is now thought of as as one of the one of the greats. You know, it, it would probably surprise everybody if if, if George W. some somehow uh, you know got exalted into the the far upper reaches. But but whether whether you know and in you all's lifetimes and in the decades ahead, uh, the Bush years will be seen the way so much of the country saw them at the at the very end. I think is a is a different question, and, and the Clinton years offer that that strong contrast. They, they when they were concluding, seemed like they were going to be looked at as this this halcyon era, uh, you know, of 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 uh, you know. Uh, Success after success, you know, with, with with a lot of political noise around it, and that's that's not, at least in the present moment, the way the way history is is inclining to think about them now. Well, I do have some Democratic friends who, on social media, often say in terms of Donald Trump that they now miss George Bush. So, uh, I I don't know if that means uh, that there's going to be complete uh, rehabilitation of his legacy or not. But Katrina a national disaster. And indeed, if you want to defend Bush on this, uh, the mistakes and misjudgments and problems at the local level and state level were pretty darn substantial. But remember when we talked about the public presidency, the permanent campaign, trying to present the best possible image and photo ops for presidents, the picture of George W. Bush in an airplane flying over New Orleans, which is lost to a flood, over a thousand people are going to die. That's probably one of the worst pictures you could ever have. And, and uh, that led to people thinking, this guy doesn't care. He rallied the country behind what happened in New York and Washington. 
where was he with Katrina? That would be the rap on him. And his popularity begins to go down when that happens. And a, a, a footnote to that, that, that picture that you all probably know well of, of uh, uh, Bush and Air Force One flying over Katrina uh, and seeming very detached. A uh, footnote to that is, is uh, his, his powerful political advisor, Karl Rove, uh, that you all probably, probably all, all recognize the name, uh, had kidney stones uh, uh, during, during Katrina and was not, not really uh, in the swing of things. You know, it, had Karl Rove been, been able to, to say, um, that's a bad idea, please don't do that, uh, would, would, uh, uh, would, that have, would that have had an effect? And you've read a lot about how a new president is always determined not to make the same mistakes as presidents before them. Notice with both Obama and Trump that we'll talk about next time, when there's a natural disaster, they at least try to be on top of it. Uh, In the back of their mind, I don't want a Katrina, right? I don't want to be viewed as somebody who uh, somehow didn't care, which clearly uh, somebody like Bush with his faith cared for people, but that appearance of neglect, uh, a disaster. Let's take the last 10 minutes and talk about both presidents and their legacies, okay? Uh, What they might share in common, how they differ. Any observations on your part? Yes. Well, when you brought up the photo of Bush, the one that comes to my mind instantly is the mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Which at the time <laughs> sounded pretty great, right? Yeah, but now thinking back on yeah. it, we're still involved in Iraq, we're still involved yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah. One of those things that at the time it looked really super, the president landing in a plane, the banner, but later on the war goes on. Yes, Sam? I think nowadays when people hear Clinton, they kind of ignore everything good he may have done, and people's minds immediately go, oh, you know, Kalinsky scandal, or right now, people's minds usually go to the suspicions of Jeffrey Epstein, so okay. he doesn't really leave a very good taste in people's mouth nowadays. Yeah. And uh, his association with the Democratic Leadership Council, trying to move the Democrats to the center, uh, the role of the progressives right now in the Democratic Party, uh, they're seriously questioning uh, Clinton's uh, legacy in many respects. But one other thing about Clinton in, in terms of impact, Think about that behavior and the consequences for two presidential elections. Al Gore distancing himself from Bill Clinton when he should have ran on the economy, right? Clinton is popular. He's going to leave off a 68% job approval rating. People might not think that he had personal integrity, but he's popular. They're happy with the economy. Gore distances himself from Clinton, doesn't use Clinton the way that George Herbert Walker Bush had used Ronald Reagan when he won the White House. Uh, That scandal plays a role in that. And then think about Hillary Clinton, uh, who, in the context of Donald Trump and the uh, famous recording about grabbing people in a certain place and everything, the Hollywood access tape, that would normally finish off a presidential candidate, right? But what do the Trump people do? They drag in Bill Clinton's sexual legacy. It (coughs) damaged both Gore because he made the decision to distance himself from Clinton. And for Hillary Clinton, had a husband who cheated on her and a husband whose behavior would come back to haunt her own presidential campaign. Anything else? Yeah. 
I think there's two aspects that are worth mentioning. Um, personally, like after like analyzing everything, I see that both presidents kind of try to push for um, you know uh, a woman being more incorporated in jobs. I mean, you had Condoleezza Rice being the first African American female Secretary of State. You had Madeleine Albright being the first female Secretary of State. Um, then you had you know Clinton nominating um, RBJ. Uh, RBJ. Um, <clears throat> What's how good is uh, Ruth Bader um, you know, to the Supreme Court, and so you kind of you, you kind of see this push for giving minorities a uh, minorities uh, a greater voice. Another aspect um, I think is the policy in terms of form, uh, you know, kind of expansion of democratic institutions, democratic ideas, especially in Latin America. Um, so that particularly in the Bush administration under Secretary uh, Rice. Um, and so, kind of two aspects that I kind of really took from both administrations. Okay. Nick, you had a question. I think um, at the end of Bush's presidency, one thing that's really forgotten is that he started the bailout of the auto industry using the TARP. Yeah. And it's often like he's never even mentioned in it. Yeah. And Which is, if, you're, if you want to defend George W. Bush, you would argue that when that crisis takes place, he puts his traditional ideological convictions aside. He listens to his advisors, and he undertakes this very controversial decision to uh, have the TARP program, uh, which is something that o- Obama had, had supported also. Uh, for Bush's defenders, it helped prevent the Great Recession from becoming another Great Depression and everything. Uh, but the and, consequences politically... And gives rise to, to one of the... the uh, uh, um, Smoother might be the way to put it, but but uh, 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 well honed transition coordinations uh, uh, between certainly between opposing parties that, that uh, uh, we've seen in recent times. So the transition, White House transition from Bush to Obama, in part because of the recession, uh, but but uh, um, uh, because uh, George W. was was very in, in, insistent on on making sure that the the transition uh, and the handoff was was good and smooth. Really, really did uh, go particularly well. Uh, certainly, you can contrast that with say the the Obama Trump uh, transition, which was much more much more fraught. That decision on the banks, completely detested by the American public. People were hurting. A lot of people lost uh, a good part of their life savings. Millions of people lost their homes. The idea that the banks got bailed out, and then you have Obama, we'll talk about next time, inheriting that horrible economic circumstance. He continues TARP. He has his own economic stimulus plan. The reaction against that in the Tea Party about deficits, about government and everything, uh, in a sense, continues political polarization, makes things much more difficult for Obama. And we have that lasting animosity to this day about banks, big business, trade deals. You think of the last presidential campaign, uh, how, how all the leading candidates uh, went after various trade deals, including the Pacific trade deal and everything. So uh, the rise of populism, the rise of populism. Anything else about their legacies, though, that someone might want to point out? Yes. Um. I just thought that it was really interesting that we talked so much about how both candidates were fairly moderate and kind of wanted to change their parties and really more like partisan and really work with the opposite side. You see that with Clinton coming in and really working with like the budget and coming to, and raising 
taxes, but also cutting spending, which is something that you see, like, you would see both parties kind of going, like, you see both parties doing the opposite. Um, and then also with Bush coming in and having No Child Left Pine, which we all kind of think of as bad now, but at the time had great bipartisan support. And even kind of looking forward to Obama working with Boehner and how Boehner kind of was pushing to try to work together in the House when you kind of started to see this Republican backlash and really kind of fast forwarding us into the 26th election and just like the Trump agenda and partisanship that we're seeing now, um, which is something that I kind of hit on last class a little bit, just about how I think politics has really changed, or at least the per like it's perceived that it's changed a lot, and that they don't they don't really care about like I mean I mean personally like I feel at this point in time that they care more about appealing to the far right or far left side of their bases as opposed to really working together for the American people. Um, and I'm sure the people in the class agree with me that like we're kind of fed up with it and we hope for a change, especially with the 2020 election coming up um, and just kind of hoping that on both sides, whether it's the left or the right, we see a move back to working together and being less partisan. For your generation, different from a boomer like me. <laughs> I grew up with relatives uh, in the 50s and 60s who were experiencing the afterglow of victory in World War II, economic recovery, a country moving forward after the Depression. Uh, for your whole life, the wars in the Middle East, partisanship, the division. One little tiny thing, though. We always focus on America, America, American politics. There is one aspect of the Bush legacy that's sometimes overlooked. He supported very large economic packages to address AIDS in Africa, malaria in Africa, clean water in Africa that saved millions of lives. So part of the Bush legacy is, for people in the Middle East, over a million lives lost there, all the people we've lost, the economic recession, things like that. But there is that other aspect, that other thing. Anything else before we wrap up? Thank you, Emily, for uh, reminding me that uh, I grew up under much more happy circumstances <laughs> your generation. Uh, I think... We need to head out, okay? And we thank C-SPAN for being here. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.